Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. <clears throat> Two years ago, on the night of July 7th, 2021, a group of heavily armed men stormed into the Port-au-Prince home of Haiti's President Juvenal Moise. They assassinated him and severely wounded his wife. Haitian security forces soon killed three suspects and arrested 20 others, with many more to follow, including numbers of Colombian mercenaries and a lengthening list of well-situated Haitians. More than 40 suspects still uncharged presently remain jailed under deplorable conditions. The U.S. State Department has said the plot to out to oust Moise was hatched in Florida, and 11 suspects were eventually taken into custody by federal authorities and subsequently charged in relation to the conspiracy. Ongoing legal proceedings against those U.S.-based suspects have been slowly moving ahead in South Florida and so far have raised numerous unanswered questions. It has been revealed that some of the accused had ties to U.S. intelligence or police agencies and the Department of Justice has argued that releasing details of the state's case could constitute a threat to national security. Meanwhile, in Haiti, authorities have accused the acting prime minister, Ariel Henry, of having connections to one of the chief suspects in Moise's murder. Nevertheless, he has continued to receive U.S. backing. Even more complex, the ongoing story continues to deepen. After all, nothing is what it might seem when it comes to politics and power in regard to this beleaguered country. Joining us to help unravel some of that complexity is the Haitian specialist Jake Johnston, a senior research associate at the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's the lead author of the CEPR's Haiti, Haiti, Relief and Reconstruction Watch. His articles and op-eds have been published in various outlets, including the New York Times, The Nation, The Intercept, Le Monde Diplomatique, Boston Review, and Al Jazeera. He's the author of the recently published Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Today, we'll be drawing from uh, uh, Johnston's July 13th New York Times opinion piece, titled, The U.S. Can Still Do Right for Haiti, as well as some other earlier writings. Jake Johnston, welcome to WORT. Thanks for having me, Alan. You know, Jake, you say, excuse me, you say in your piece that Haiti's political paralysis and spiraling violence did not begin with the assassination of the president. In many ways, it was decades in the making. I'm wondering if you might provide us with some broader context, a background sketch perhaps, of the crisis-ridden country to further situate the the July 21 events. Yeah, sure thing. And, you know, I think when we're having this conversation, we could go back to 
the founding of Haiti to 1804 and a successful slave revolt and overthrowing the, the French. Uh, you know, we could go to the early 20th century U.S. military occupation of Haiti, which drastically reoriented the economy, created the military, uh, changed the country. Uh, we could go to the dictatorship uh, that ruled with U.S. support for decades in, in the late 20th century. But of course, we don't need to go back that far into history to see this pattern of international intervention and how these foreign powers uh, relate to the situation in Haiti. Right. So I, a big part of my work on Haiti, um, you know, really started after the 2010 earthquake. Right? And it was just a year after that when foreign powers intervened to arbitrarily overturn the results of an election. You add that to a coup in 2004, another coup in 1991, and you can see this long pattern of, of troubling, uh, you know, international intervention with regard to Haitian democracy. So when we talk about, you know, it, people are looking at Haiti today, they're seeing the situation and, you know, there's a, a narrative that, you know, sort of, well, with the assassination of the president, everything sort of collapsed and, and now this is what you get. And I think it's more appropriate to sort of look at it the other way around. The assassination was the result of those very dynamics, right, that existed before and are now on full display and the world is paying at least a little bit more attention. But this issue of a democracy, of a, of a public a state, right, that is not representative of the people, that is, uh, you know, broadly representative of international interest and of local elite interests, uh, you know, was never sustainable, was never going to really last. And I think what we're seeing is the manifestation of that. Jake Johnston, talk to about the current situation. That is the social and political backdrop for the uh, legal proceedings slowly unfolding in Haiti and in the U.S. What's the current situation like? With regard to the case itself? Oh, in general, because it, it comes amidst, of course, this turmoil, this tumult in, in the country, uh, taking many form, shapes and forms. Yeah, of course. And so after the assassination this took place in July 2021, uh, a, a doctor, Dr. Ariel Henri, sort of emerged from within an internal power struggle and received the support of the international community and has been uh, running the country sort of as de facto prime minister and president for the last two years. Now, there haven't been any elections in Haiti since 2016. There's no currently elected officials at any level across the government right across the country, whether local, national positions, right? So that's the sort of broad political situation, all power consolidated under one individual, the strong backing of the international community, and a vibrant civil society movement that has been organizing for many years, as well as many opposition political parties and other actors who are, you know, urging, uh, you know, advocating for a new sort of transition, um, you know, one that could sort of more holistically address the challenges and I think most crucially share power amongst more than one individual, right? And with that as the political backdrop, the, the socioeconomic situation has certainly taken a, a dramatic turn for the worse. Roughly 60% of the country is currently facing acute food insecurity. Levels of violence have soared. Uh, armed groups do control significant parts of the capital. Now, I don't think you can uh, sort of disentangle that from the political situation. Many of these groups do draw support from the political and economic elite in the country. Uh, but the situation on the ground is extremely dire. I mean, I think it, it's not an exaggeration to say it, it's one of the worst periods in, in Haiti's history. Uh, and that is the reality today. What at this point is known about what happened on that night of July 7th, 21? And 
what led up to it? That is, who was Moise and who wanted him gone and why? Yeah, these are excellent questions, right? And I think, you know, it is important to sort of just preface up front. There is a lot we don't know, right? But there is more we don't know than what we do know about what really happened that night in July and the motivations or masterminds behind it. But I think what we can say quite confidently, right, is that over the last few years of his time in office, Moise had been largely governing um, by himself, right? The terms of parliament had already expired. He was ruling by decree. Uh, and in many ways, he had no longer, uh, he had become uh, sort of a threat to the status quo as opposed to the guarantor of the status quo, right? And so, you know, I think the, the man who put him into the position, who sort of promoted him and his candidacy, his predecessor, Michel Martelly, uh, certainly expected to come back to power after Jovenel Moïse. The international community had invested tremendous resources in Jovenel Moïse, his administration, and his ability to hold elections and sort of see through this, this sort of facade of democratic stability in Haiti that's been backed by the international community for so long. And what was really clear is that by the end, it was extremely unlikely that those things were going to happen, right? He had swung power to somebody else in terms of the next election, but it was really uh, unclear that he'd even be able to hold an election, right? Uh, Groups had been advocating for his resignation or pushing him from office for many years, and there had been very public efforts to coalesce around a transitional agreement Uh, There was even contention and debate over whether or not his mandate had actually expired or not. So this was sort of part of this governance crisis that existed prior to the assassination and I think does give some context to the broader scenario uh, around his assassination. So what in brief has been revealed so far in regard to what clearly was a large-scale conspiracy to overthrow Moïse? Yeah, what we can say is, you know, what the Department of Justice has alleged, right, is that the plot was hatched in South Florida, uh, primarily by a few individuals. One, a Haitian-American pastor with longtime political ambitions in Haiti, a man named Christian Emmanuel Sanon. And that at some point during uh, the 2021, he had hired a South Florida security firm, CTU Security Uh, which had then hired a number of Colombian mercenaries who showed up in Haiti ostensibly to provide security for Sanon and his presidential as he sought uh, the presidency or prime ministership through whatever process, be it a coup or a negotiated agreement, etc. But that that was the sort of backdrop to this plot, right? And that at some point that plot, that that Uh, conspiracy move from a a plan to arrest the president or replace him through some process to an outright assassination attempt. And I think that's where things get much, much murkier, right? Uh, Who exactly was responsible for that? Uh, You know, who was involved in that? We really, there's a lot of questions remaining. And, And one of the key things is that even the DOJ says that by the end, uh, these Colombian mercenaries in the South Florida firm had totally moved on from Sanon as the actual likely, uh, uh, you know, political leader. And so, again, raising even new questions about who inside Haiti was was involved in this, because we really are only seeing through the U.S. case, the nexus with South Florida, which, of course, makes sense from a U.S. legal perspective, but also leaves huge questions remaining in terms of who the ultimate masterminds are. And Uh, The Miami Herald even reported earlier this month that the FBI investigation, the DOJ investigation, is not uh, is not proceeding with the intention of identifying the masterminds. It is narrowly focused just on the South Florida connection. And I think the really important thing to understand with that South Florida connection. Right. And I think this is this is something that I write about in this piece 
the FBI earlier uh, this year acknowledged in a court filing that one of the owners of that Florida security company was an active FBI informant at the time of the assassination. And in fact, three months earlier had met with FBI agents where they had discussed regime change in Haiti. And the FBI has acknowledged this in court and it says it had no knowledge, right? It had nothing to do with it, gave no approval. But just those basic facts, even if it didn't give an approval or anything, the FBI knew that an informant of theirs was actively engaged in a conspiracy related to regime change in Haiti. You know, who was made aware of that? Uh, what was the internal communication surrounding that? I think this raises huge questions uh, for the US government. And it's one of the big reasons why the secrecy uh, and confidentiality provisions around the case are so problematic. I found it interesting in reading, you know, boning up for this program and reading, I, I, I did a program a while ago on the assassination and so on, that the security guards uh, the detachment of, of security at Moise's home that night don't get involved. They, they stand down, it appears. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I think this is one of the, the great mysteries, right? I mean, you have a number of the president's top security officials who are currently in, in a jail in Haiti, right? Uh, and again, the investigation in Haiti, extremely fraught. And maybe we can get into some of the details there later on. But with the security, uh, you know, just the basic facts are, are shocking, right? I mean, you have an elite security unit that is protecting the president that is stationed all around his house. There are multiple security checkpoints. And yet this group of 20 plus foreign mercenaries waltz through the front door and not a single security guard was even injured, right? Uh, how does that happen? And I, I think it's pretty clear it doesn't happen without some sort of uh, uh, involvement, right? Now, one thing I reported on, this was in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, uh, was the head of the president's palace guard, a man named Dimitri Arard, uh, had actually been uh, the subject of a U.S. investigation into both money, uh, drug trafficking and arms trafficking, and that the president himself was actually directly aware of U.S. law enforcement's attention on this individual uh, leading up to the assassination. So this gives you a sense of sort of the character uh, and the type of people who were responsible for the president's security that night. Um, you mentioned, of course, that one of the uh, that one of the um, uh, defendants, if you will, in the Florida case uh, was an active FBI informant. Uh, two others were uh, apparently were Drug Enforcement Administration informants as well. Yeah, that's right. And and to be clear, the DA says they were they were former informants, right? So they weren't actively uh, working as informants at the time of the assassination. But it is worth noting, right, when this group showed up at the president's house and these videos, you know, went viral almost immediately, uh, somebody got on a, a loudspeaker and said, DA operation, stand down and repeated it over and over again in English and Creole, right? And we know that one of the people who was embedded in that group was a former DA informant, right? And I think part of this entire thing, and one of the most revealing things to, to me, uh, right, is listening to all of those people who have been accused of involvement. And just about everybody uh, who's been able to speak publicly has said that they believed they were operating with the support of the U.S. government, right? And that's not to say that that is true, but that perception is important, right? And the role of these people who were or previously or were actively informants for the U.S. government, I think, goes to helping explain how that perception could be built through a group in Haiti. And I think it also reveals something deeper, which is the centuries of 
intervention and interference by the U.S. and other foreign powers that makes people in Haiti certainly, uh, you know, open to the idea that, yeah, maybe the U.S. is supporting something like this, right? It wasn't, it, that wouldn't have come as a surprise to anybody who was involved. You go on to say that the, the Department of Justice has argued that releasing details from the current proceedings may constitute a threat to national security. Do you have any sense of that, uh, of what the DOJ's concern could possibly be? I mean, what Haiti, what goes on in Haiti is going to threaten the national security of the United States? Yeah, and I think, you know, to be clear, right, this is a, uh, a designation that is not, uh, it's not sort of a regular occurrence in court proceedings, but certainly is not unprecedented. Now, where it's usually seen are cases of uh, state espionage and things like this, right, where you see this designation, uh, confidentiality restrictions and, and threats to national security. Now, in this case, what the DOJ has, has largely argued, right, is that, um, you know, they're not explicitly saying, oh, well, our FBI informant was involved, and so this is a threat to us, right? But what they do say is that, uh, you know, details, testimony, things like this will expose ongoing law enforcement activity, will expose sources and informants or other people whose identities, you know, are not known and things of this nature. So more like uh, revealing the tricks of the trade, right, or, or the ways in which the U.S. goes about collecting intelligence in, in countries like Haiti. But I think, again, given the connections to the FBI, to the DEA, uh, there's, a, I've written a tremendous amount about this and, and, you know, I wrote one piece called They Fooled Us. And then this sort of, that piece is much longer and it goes into uh, extreme detail on many more individuals involved in this who also claim to work for the U.S. government, right? Uh, the State Department, NSC, various agencies. Um, and so given all of these connections, right, I think, uh, you know, we, we have to balance the need to protect uh, our nation's secrets against the need to uh, be transparent about our own role in what is a heinous international crime with huge implications, right? Um, and I think there is a, a duty of transparency. I think one thing that's been really disappointing is, you know, okay, it's one thing for the DOJ to make this argument, but we've seen virtually no calls for greater oversight or transparency from the U.S. Congress itself. Two years ago, uh, they did ask the State Department to do a report on specifically U.S. informants um, that were involved in the assassination. And the State Department's response was a total nothing report that just said, well, there's an ongoing case, we can't comment. But ever since then, there's been zero follow-up from Congress. And the issue itself, I don't want to say it's received zero media coverage. And uh, Of course, there's been some. But, you know, given the, the nature of the crime and the nature of, of these connections to U.S. agencies, and including the current de facto prime minister of Haiti, uh, you'd think this would be uh, serious headline news. You're listening to Jake Johnston. Jake is a senior research associate at the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's a Haitian specialist. We're talking about Haiti today. He's the lead author of the CEPR's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. Well, you're opening up the phone lines in, oh, at the half hour at, in about five minutes at 608-256-2001. If you'd like to get in with a comment, a question, an observation for our guest today, again, call 608-256-2001. Jake Johnson, in your, in your piece in the New York Times, you, you kind of threw out a sentence that gave me pause, and I want you to go a little bit deeper. 
Um, that is, you wrote that even today, as Haiti descends further into crisis, Washington is attempting to put a thumb on Haiti's political scales. How so? In what fashion? And why would they do that? Well, I, I think, you know, for one, that is consistent with the history of political intervention. Right? That's nothing new, uh, right? What's ostensibly changed is the rhetoric. The Biden administration came in and said, hey, the, the, these picking winners and losers, this is a thing of the past. We're moving on. And yet what we saw, right, in the weeks after the assassination was the international community in the U.S. line up very strongly behind one particular leader and stand very strongly behind him uh, for the last two years. And I think how this manifests itself on the ground is most acutely seen in these political negotiations that are ongoing. Uh, the reality in, in Haiti and Haiti's politics, right, and I think it's important to note, Haiti's politics is largely divorced from the interests of the Haitian people, right? Uh, and over time, it, it's really more responsive to international actors than the Haitian population itself, right? And that support from the international community is giving the current de facto prime minister uh, basic veto power over the path forward, right? And that's allowing him to not meaningfully negotiate and not share power. And those things are preventing a real, more a dur more durable solution from, from taking place. Tell us about, let's go back to, I mentioned, and then you mentioned earlier, uh, Ariel Henry. Who is it? Who he, who he is? Who is he? And why is the U.S.? Uh, why has the U.S. stood and continues to stand firmly behind him? Yeah, I think, you know, these are big questions, uh, right? Henri has been, um, he's, a, he's a neurosurgeon by trade, but he has not been divorced from Haiti's politics. After the 2004 coup, he was a part of a small group called the Council of Sages that sort of steered that country's transition and selected an interim president for the transition period. So he's certainly somebody the international community has turned to in the past uh, at similar times of, of political, political instability. Now, you know, why has the U.S. stood by him so far? I mean, I think there's a few different answers. Uh, one is it's the path of least resistance. Uh, he's the known entity. They know they can uh, talk to him. They know he will listen to them. And an alternative to that is an unknown. For U.S. policymakers and policymakers everywhere, the unknown is scary. Uh, you like to deal with what you know, and he is what they know. Uh, and I think, you know, related to that, it's not just knowing, but it's knowing uh, that he will be a reliable ally. And so, you know, we've seen U.S. officials praise many of the decisions he's made that were quite unpopular at home, but were pleasing to the international community and to the U.S. Decision to continue to accept deportations despite the horrific situation on the ground decision to eliminate fuel subsidies, decision to undertake economic reforms to secure IMF funding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. His decision to request uh, a foreign military intervention, which was done clearly in coordination with the United States government and other actors in the international community. So he has been a reliable partner for them. And I think that is, you know, the sort of basis of that relationship. So how do you, how do we understand, how do we explain that continuing U.S. support for Henri, despite what you refer to as his close links to a prime suspect in Moise's assassination. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is uh, a question I'd love to see some some members of Congress pose to uh, U.S. government officials, right? And, but unfortunately, you know, we haven't seen that. Today, actually, just earlier this morning, uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Brian Nichols, uh, was asked to testify in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about Haiti. 
only two senators even showed up for that hearing and one left after their opening remarks to go participate in another vote. It was an empty room, right? So that gives you the level of attention that this Congress is paying to, to Haiti. Uh, but I think it's worth taking a little time to just talk about some of these connections, right? So one of the principal suspects in the assassination, somebody who remains a fugitive to this day, is a, a justice ministry, Haitian justice ministry official, Joseph Felix Badio. And you know, we know he was uh, there with the Colombian mercenaries ahead of the operation. We know he had been talking to folks and securing, uh, you know, cars and other logistic item, logistical items for the conspiracy. Um, so we know that he was involved in some some way here. Uh, he goes way back with Henri. In fact, when Henri was a minister of interior under Martelli, 2015, uh, he tried to make uh, this individual Badio his chief of intelligence. And the relationship continued. Uh, they were in regular contact uh, in the two weeks leading up to the assassination. And I think most critically, and what's gotten the most attention, is that the night of the assassination at 4 a.m., there are two phone calls that last about three and a half minutes each between Badio, this, this wanted suspect, and Ariel Henri. And Henri's initial reaction was to deny they had ever taken place and to say he, you know, had no idea and didn't think Badio was involved. And of course, the, the phone records that have since been released have confirmed those phone calls took place. And it goes further than that. We've got reports from both CNN and the New York Times that in the months after the assassination, Henri met personally with this individual, Badio, while he was a wanted fugitive in the assassination case. And when the former prosecutor uh, attempted to ask Henri uh, questions around this relationship. Henri refused. He called the justice minister and told the justice minister to fire, fire the prosecutor. The justice minister refused. And then Henri unilaterally fired them both. Right. So when we're talking about problems with the local investigation in Haiti, uh, you know, we have to look at the leadership there as well. Again, you're listening to Jake Johnston. Haitian specialist with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Give us a call. Live phone lines are open now. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. If you have a question, a comment, an observation for our guests, again, 608-256-2001. Go a little bit deeper into what happened when the chief prosecutor overseeing the assassination case uh, called Henri to testify. Um, I've also read in, in connection to that that there, there's been threats of inti and intimidation against members of the judiciary and other, uh, you know, well, other law law officials. Yeah, that's no doubt. I mean, that was happening from the first days, the first hours after the assassination. So some of the judicial investigators who were on the scene and interviewing witnesses and going to the house and doing this just in the days after. Uh, received direct explicit death threats for their work. Um, you know, we have the documentation of this. Uh, one of them received a call from, and this goes back to an earlier point you made, from one of the president's top security officials uh, in, in the days after the assassination. Um, you know, so those threats were happening from the get-go. Many people have been forced to flee the country. The current judge overseeing the case is now the fifth judge to be assigned to this case. Others have backed out for personal reasons, safety reasons. Uh, or had their mandate, uh, you know, not renewed by the judicial authorities. And so we've seen this constant turnover over the Haitian case. And, you know, I think the, the prospects are, are pretty slim. I think few people have hoped that, that there's going to be real answers coming. 
one of the prior judges, uh, there was a leaked audio recording that came out of one of the prior judges on the case saying, of course, Ariel Henry is a suspect, but what can I do to him now? Right. And, and I think that sort of sums up a, a lot of the feeling within the judicial system about, uh, you know, how 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 their hands are tied. Jake Johnston, excuse me, Jake Johnston, you've noted that the Biden drawing from your article, the Biden administration has pledged a new era of relations with Haiti, one in which the United States no longer picks political winners or losers, but its actions since the assassination belie the rhetoric. Talk about the ways in which, uh, in which the administration's actions contradict that rhetoric. Yeah, of course. And so I think, you know, there's a, a dynamic here, right? And, and you know, I think myself and others have, have argued for a long time uh, and talked against U.S. intervention in, in Haitian politics, right? And now the U.S. is is staying a little bit more quiet, right? And, and officials, you know, in private conversations, public conversations say, well, you can't have it both ways. You say we can't intervene and now you want us to intervene to get rid of Henri or not to support him. And I think, you know, it's a it's a superficial uh, narrative there, right? Because I think it ignores the fact that that intervention is ongoing, right? Uh, we're not talking about the U.S. intervening to get rid of Henri. We're talking about the U.S. stopping their intervention of supporting Henri, right? And again, I, I talked about this dynamic earlier in terms of this, this sort of blank check that they've given Henri and how that empowers him to not share power in Haiti, to not reach a sustainable political agreement with, with civil society and with other actors in Haiti. Uh, and, and that dynamic, you know, and we're hearing this from, from people on the ground. There was a, recently a meeting in Kingston, Jamaica, where brought a number of these stakeholders together for political negotiations. And uh, you know, at one point, Henri basically said, you know, I'm not here to negotiate. And he left, he left the meeting entirely. Now, what got him back in the room? Uh, you know, some some timely calls from international officials saying, hey, this is not going to look good if you don't participate. Right. But it, it has this appearance of, of a show, which I think, you know, the international news has been putting on in Haiti for for decades. Uh, you know, it's it's the facade of democracy, the facade of negotiation, the facade of stability. And what's underlying that is an inherently unsustainable status quo that is bound to explode. It appears that the Biden administration has promised little more than additional millions of military aid for policing and security, et cetera, and and support, as you've mentioned earlier, for another international peacekeeping intervention. Talk about that. That is that, you know, that constant problem internationally of a money for uh, material weapons and so on and so forth uh, versus uh, social supports, uh, you know, aid, aid, you know, aid money going to the, the, the people who need it the most. And then, of course, this whole thing that's ongoing in your articles and so on, which you, uh, I mean, you and others allude to this ongoing demand for peacekeeping intervention. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, first and foremost, important to note that, uh, you know, there was a UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti uh, from 2004 to 2017, right? This was the institution that was supposed to build up Haiti's local institutions, support the police force. It cost over $7 billion, right? Uh, and it clearly was a failure, right? Not only that, but it left a, a legacy of cholera, which killed you know, upwards of 30,000 Haitians and was introduced by negligent sanitation practices by the peacekeeping operation, uh, of, of sexual violence and abuse, of 
hundreds of mothers uh, with children whose fathers have abandoned them and have left the country from the peacekeeping forces. So a, a really damning legacy of intervention and in, in of these peacekeeping missions. And so you have to understand that context as we're now talking about doing it all over again. But I think, you know, there's a bigger issue here, right, around this prioritization, as you mentioned, of security and security assistance, right? And it's easy to look at Haiti and say, well, how are you going to have an election? How are you going to have any political, uh, you know, future or political advancement without security? How can security not be the very first thing you have to address? And I think, you know, the answer to that, the answer that I have to that, at least, is that you know, the security situation is not divorced from all of these other things, right? And you can't address it in a vacuum, right? You can't just address security and ignore everything else and think that those things aren't going to feed back onto security or vice versa, right? And so this can't be just a narrow security focused uh, approach. You know, that is traditionally what what foreign powers are going to want to do. Uh, And we've just seen that 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 doesn't work, uh, right? It's not going to work, hasn't worked, and, and is unlikely to work moving forward. You know, you mentioned, you know, this part of this discussion about security and, and what it means, what it is, what type of security. Uh, I came across this piece that me, done a while ago, mentioning the presence of, of General retired General Wesley Clark, former Democratic uh, candidate for president, uh, representing a, a security firm, a weapons firm, if you will, uh, in, in Haiti. Can you... Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there have been plenty of, you know, high level talks, folks, private actors, right? I mean, when you're talking about security, uh, you talk about, say, okay, the US, they say they've spent $100 million in support of the Haitian National Police. You know, how much of that money do you think goes directly to the Haitian National Police? I can tell you it's about zero, right? It goes to US companies, it goes to corporations who then distribute that money in terms of goods or do training or things like that, right? But this is, and this is not just about security. This is about aid in general. You know, this is a big part of of the book that I have coming out. The concept behind aid state is, is that that is how these things work. And so it's not even about directing aid from security to other priority things. It's about changing the underlying system of how we provide aid and why we provide aid, about what type of aid it is that we're really providing. And I think most fundamentally about whose interests we're really looking to promote and protect. You know, I think it sort of gets lost, but uh, there was a a nomination hearing for a new U.S. ambassador to Haiti. There hasn't been a U.S. ambassador there for some time now. And these nomination hearings are, are interesting, right? Because when you're justifying your job to the U.S. Senate, uh, you're very clear about what your job is. It's protecting U.S. interests, right? That, that's what your job is as an ambassador. Once you get into the country, you start talking about shared interests, the needs of the Haitian people. But at its core, your job is to protect U.S. interests, right? And, and that's what our foreign policy system, that's what our aid system, that's the core of it, right, is advancing U.S. interests, economic interests, geopolitical interests. That's at the core of it. And so long as that's at the core of it, we shouldn't be surprised that our aid and our interventions are not leading to the best interest of the Haitian people or the interest of the people of any other country where we're trying to do these things. Because we have to be honest about what the real motivations are behind these things. Take take that a little bit further. That is, can you unwrap a little bit what those economic uh, concerns and so on U.S. concerns are in Haiti. Yeah, well, I don't think it's 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 inherently the the economic market of Haiti, right? But it's that our foreign aid system, 
right? It's the aid industrial complex, right? It is the little the little brother of the military industrial complex. Uh, you know, this creates thousands of jobs in congressional districts all around the country, development firms, NGOs, etc. And we channel money through these actors because that's what Congress demands we spend our foreign aid budget on, right? Uh, it's largely not the responsibility or problems of the people who are trying to implement policies and projects on the ground. Their hands have been tied by a Hello? Oh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. That cares more about protecting American jobs than effective development assistance. Your New York Times piece argued that, quote, there is still time for Washington to change course. You pointed out that a group of Haitian civil society organizations recently argued that it is long past time that the United States uh, stopped propping up unpopular political leaders, especially those implicated in unsolved murders. He went on to state that the Biden administration should view the investigation into Moise's murder not as a threat to national security, but as an opportunity. You close the column with several suggestions. Uh, what should the U.S. be doing? Talk about your suggestions. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's sort of twofold here. One is is on the political front and the other is sort of directly related to the assassination itself, right? And I think on the political front, uh, you know, it, it's not the responsibility of the United States to create a development plan for Haiti or to chart Haiti's future, right? That's the job for Haitians. Um, what the U.S. can do is stop intervening in a way that prevents that from taking place, right? And then that's the argument with its support for the current unelected uh, uh, regime in Haiti, right? Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a really clear thing that the U.S. can do. It doesn't cost any money, right? It doesn't, it's, it's, uh, it's a snap of a finger. It's a simple policy choice, right? What What's our stance going to be? On the assassination, you know, I think it's worth taking some time here. And, and I've gotten at some of these issues because I think the importance of the assassination case is not just how it relates to the current political paralysis in Haiti or the ties to the prime minister or the ties to U.S. intelligence. But again, this bigger picture of what it tells us about historical and ongoing U.S. intervention in Haiti, right? And to, okay, the administration is talking about a new page, a new leaf. Well, if that's the case, then let's take the assassination case. Let's take it to its natural, uh, you know, where it leads us. Let's let's follow all these things. Let's have actual accountability for the U.S. agencies who didn't keep track of their informants, who then got involved in an assassination conspiracy, right? Let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about the people who we work with in Haiti. Let's talk about the actors, political and economic actors we support in Haiti, who I think, you know, anybody would believe are eventually going to uh, come up in an investigation that really went uh, where it needed to go. And so again, taking it as an opportunity to use it as a reset of relations, as a way to try and begin to, to make up for some of this history. And I just want to make one additional point here. And, and this is in the, you cite the, you know, how I noted that the letter from civil society asking them to, to U.S. to stop support. And I think it's worth looking at the, the entirety of the recommendations, but I want to just highlight one in particular, which is uh, the demand for reparations, right? And this goes back to the first thing I said on, on the show around uh, Haiti's independence. And, you know, it's uh, becoming a little bit more known, but it, it is still not well enough known, right, that Haiti had to pay for its freedom. It was forced, the threat of war, to pay for its freedom, a ransom to its enslavers. And it paid that for well over a century. And that represents a tremendous loss and long-term impact. And, and, you know, 
there's no changing the history here, right? There's no making up for it, but that's a start. Talk, talk about that a little bit further for folks not uh, familiar with any of that history. Uh, reparations to whom? So in, in 1804, Haiti declared its independence, right? This followed a 10-year um, revolutionary struggle against the French to overthrow the institution of slavery, right? And this was the first successful slave revolt uh, in the world, the first independent black nation, the second independent nation in the Western Hemisphere behind the United States. But its independence uh, was not simply uh, acknowledged, right? Even the United States didn't recognize uh, Haitian as an independent nation for another more than 50 years. And instead, Haiti was made to pay, literally to pay back those who held property, i.e. enslaved population, for the loss, their economic loss by Haiti's independence, right? And so, you know, what the form of reparations are, well, there are a lot of different demands for a lot of different ways for how that might work, right? But I think the, the core of it is that those countries that extracted that wealth from Haiti for what is so obviously uh, an unjust thing uh, do have some responsibility for the situation in Haiti today. Let's, let's turn, let's turn, you know, we have some remaining time. Tell us about your book. It's the, just the title I find uh, provocative and, and well, I certainly want to, take a closer look at it when the opportunity affords aid state elite panic disaster capitalism and the battle to control haiti what do you set out to do in the book yeah i think you know at its core uh you know i think much of the book is, is sort of a corrective to the notion of haiti as a failed state right i think it's easy to look at haiti and see the situation today and sort of be like oh well once again haiti in crisis you know we, we've seen this story before it's it's you know, it's on this repeat cycle. And what I try and do in the book is get at the other factors, and I'd say specifically the non-Haitian factors that are have contributed to this, right? And it's not to say that, you know, it's not just about aid and foreign aid specifically, but how the Haitian state uh, has been shaped as much by external actors and external interventions as it has by the Haitian people themselves. And this dynamic of a Haitian state sort of in opposition to the Haitian people is not a unique insight for me. I mean, Haitian academics have been writing about this for centuries, right? But I think, it, uh, you know, again, putting the focus on that struggle there and the role of the international community in perpetuating, again, that inherently unstable and unsustainable uh, relationship between the state and the people. Take that further. That is, uh, you turn an interesting phrase there, a state in opposition to its people, uh, well, it's this incredible kind of, well, neo-colonial or colonial model uh, that has uh, kept the country in bondage, really. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, again, I, this is not a unique argument for me. You know, Haitian, Haitian scholars and academics have been writing about this for a long time. But this is, you know, a dynamic that really existed since its independence, where many of the same uh, landholders sort of were able to maintain their economic and political power in the centuries after. And so, you know, we see today a sort of, and throughout Haiti's history, uh, this constant struggle to sort of keep an extractive 
economic model, right? That uh, while maybe not as overt as it once was, is largely rooted in the same underlying dynamics. And you saw this uh, after the earthquake where the sort of economic development path for Haiti was entirely one through exports, right? Low wage, uh, sweatshop, garment manufacturing, uh, agricultural products for export. It was uh, not about building local capacity or feeding the Haitian people. Uh, it was about serving a foreign audience, right? And, and so again, we've seen this system sort of repeat and it's this constant struggle that I think has, has defined so much of Haiti's history um, between that vision of Haiti and the vision of the Haitian people, which you know, I think it's so important to, to focus on that as well. I mean, there's amazing organizing happening uh, all over Haiti uh, for today, for decades, for centuries, right? Their struggle, their fight, um, I think is important, and not just for Haiti, but for the world, right? I mean, Haiti stood as a beacon of hope when it overthrew the institution of slavery and declared independence, right? It was an inspiration for the world in 1999, the election of Jean-Bertrand Aristide and overthrowing a dictatorship, right? Haiti has stood at the forefront of history for so long. Uh, its people are more than capable, and it's largely a local elite and their allies in the foreign community that have tried to fight against that. Take a step back. That is, you, you kind of blew by the, these efforts on the ground, the various organizations, institutions, uh, people struggling at, at the local level. Uh, can you give us some examples of, of things you're aware of uh, that you've witnessed, perhaps? Sure. And I think, you know, these things happen on different levels, right? Extremely local levels where, you know, a community comes together and fed up with the education system or the public, uh, you know, provision there creates their own school and creates their own community support center. And that's, you know, we're talking about something that might just serve a few dozen people, right? Um, but it's those things like that, that I think, you know, really give a stronger indication of, the capabilities and where with all the Haitian people than what we see in the news and this perception of Haiti as this perpetually unstable failed state, you know, characterized only by violence. Yeah, the um, it's interesting that you talked about uh, you brought up failed state toward the end because I realized as soon as you said it that I was kind of hooked into that construct uh, that uh, uh, that we've become so accustomed to, uh, and if you know, and if a state has failed then who's responsible? It's not, you know, you, at some level, it rolls back to blaming the victim. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I was talking to, there was a, you know, the U.S. Special Envoy for Haiti was named right after the assassination, Dan Foote. He then resigned in opposition to U.S. policies. And I, I sat down with him and interviewed him uh, for this book, right? And I, I posed this question just to him, right? Uh, you know, is, is Haiti a failed state? You know, <laughs> and his response was, are you kidding me? Haitians haven't had the chance to fail, right? What I know is that we will fail, but we got to at least give them a shot, right? And I, I think that does really sort of sum things up, uh, you know, pretty well. Well, uh, Jake Johnston, we, uh, we have a few minutes left in the hour. Um, what else can we talk about? What have we not touched on? Or maybe you can s sum up, uh, head toward a wrap here. It's yeah, well, look, I mean, I think, you know, we're back in a situation today, right, having a conversation that uh, has been had many times before, you know, what's the role of the international community, uh, what's going to happen in terms of security assistance, what's going to happen in terms of peacekeeping operations, right, and all this stuff. And I, and I think, you know, it's really important um, 
right now, and again, I mentioned earlier the situation with the Senate hearing today where nobody even showed up to ask questions of U.S. government officials, right? I think what's critically important is for Americans to see this as not just an issue that affects Haitians, but that affects us all, right? This is about systemic racism. This is about independence. This is about freedom. This is about, you know, solidarity. Uh, And I think these are issues that, again, far broader than just Haiti. And I think, you know, we need to be pressuring members of Congress. We need to be telling people that, that Americans do care about this, that we care about how we treat uh, our neighbors and how we treat our brotherly nations and that we want to change. And, you know, until the administration starts hearing that, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see much in the way of, of real change in U.S. policy. Take a minute or so to talk about uh, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Yeah, sure. The organization uh, where I work, again, um, you know, we've been around for uh, well, almost 25 years now. Uh, it's a pretty small organization, you know, where our work is largely split between international and domestic work. Uh, you know, we've done a tremendous amount of work on Social Security and other issues like that on the domestic front. I obviously am, am on the international side. And, and there we focus largely on, on Latin America um, and the Caribbean, of course, and other institutions like the IMF, the World Bank and the global financial system. You know, I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to, uh, again, sort of change these narratives and change these entrenched attitudes uh, that you see repeated time and again in the media, but that aren't backed up by the data. They're not backed up by the facts. And, you know, what, what we try and do is cut through that. The, the numbers uh, the numbers are on our side. We just need more people to see them. Well, I want to take this opportunity to uh, thank you ever so much. Uh, we didn't have any callers today, uh, which sometimes happens, and I like I like to believe that people found the hour uh, w- worth listening to. So I want to thank you ever ever so much, Jake Johnston, and um, I'll try to stay tuned to developments in Haiti and perhaps have you back sometime. I want to thank you very much. Anytime. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to Jake Johnston, Haiti specialist. He's a senior research associate at the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's the lead author of the CEPR's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. I'll repeat that because I looked at it and it's quite good. That is the Haiti, Haiti colon Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. Um, and his articles have appeared in numerous national and international outlets. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. I want to thank uh, Jade for engineering and producing today. I want to, uh, again, thank you all listeners. I have some feedback here. <laughs> well, I'll, Again, my name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Airways from unknown positions, live and direct, become and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported, live and direct, become and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted.